Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, along with my co-host, the creator of the show, and Archivist Supreme, Mr. Tom Jokic. And this show is for the true hardcore music fans, the people who want to know what all of their friends don't know, and they want to know the stories behind the stories behind the stories, because we have all of that in this incredible library of music interviews going back... 50 or 60 years, everywhere from Elvis to Taylor Swift. That's right. And everything in between. Tom? Well, Christopher, as you know, we lean pretty heavily on the immense pile of Beatles archive interviews that we have. Oh, yeah. We've done George Harrison, your interview with him from, I think, 1989. We've done a great John Lennon interview from about 74, 75, just before he went into retirement. Um, we have we had a great full-on Beatles episode to start season three, which is excellent. Episode 301, check that out. Um, and we've got just all kinds of stuff. Um, we've heard uh, Paul McCartney just recently with a very extensive interview with him talking about his greatest hits. And this week, we return to the great George Harrison talking about everything from the early days of the Beatles to the recording of the White Album and whether... All those songs on a double album were a mistake or a good idea. Or necessary. Well, that's right. <laughs> and to uh, a couple of tracks from Abbey Road, his two tracks, which are two of the best of all time, plus much more from George Harrison. It's excellent. Tom, what else have we got this week? There's going to be my interview, 2002 interview with Greg Keeler and Jim Cuddy from Blue Rodeo. It wasn't my first rodeo with these guys, if you'll pardon the pun. I'd interviewed them a few times before then, but this was definitely the most in-depth chat I had had with them, and it's one of my favorites. We talked about everything from why they remain popular across Canada to why hit singles are important, yet not important, and why touring is just about the best thing ever. Wow, which is not the most popular point of view. That's right. So that's cool. still to come on Famous Lost Words. You're asking me, will my love grow? I don't know. I don't know. One of the greatest love songs in the history of music, That's Something by George Harrison. Who knew that after all the archival mining that Tom Jokic has done, <laughs> there would still be Beatle bits worthy of sharing? Well, this week's Fabathon features the Quiet Beetle, who, when you give him a chance, has a lot to say. Mm -hmm. Now, perhaps needless to say, my encounter with George Harrison was a huge moment during my time at Much Music. It was the interview that I had been preparing for for, oh, at least 25 years, right? <laughs> and in these three separate sets of clips, I hear the same understated wit and seriousness that kind of doesn't draw attention to itself the way his bandmates commanded the spotlight. But the details in these relatively short quotes are pure delight for Beatles fans. In the third group, he looks back with real clarity on the White Album and the song choices therein. In part two, he talks about Abbey Road. And in the two clips that make up the first segment, oh man, it's fascinating early Beatles trivia, starting with the origins of the legendary Beatle Doo. Well, we were really scruffs, actually. You know, first of all, none of us really thought about the idea of getting haircuts. In fact, I remember in Germany, if anybody wanted a haircut, we used to just cut it at each other's. You know, just hack a bit off. It wasn't, it's, you know, that you needed... Uh, I mean, it was more important to try and buy a guitar or something than, you know, 
have a jacket or a haircut. So, but it was during that period, I suppose. We, we were always greased back, you know. At that point, we used to just have... In fact, if you ever see those old pictures, it's just Vaseline, you know, that thick, like, axle grease. And trying, I was always trying to grease mine back, which it would never do anyway, but it was during that, maybe the second Hamburg trip where the whole sort of floppy Beatles style, which was considered long. Okay, even though we all know so much Beatles history, it's always great to hear it right from the Beatles' mouth, isn't it? <laughs> For sure. So here, Tom, George details some of the early Beatle names, and I hadn't heard all of these. Mm. And here's something I definitely hadn't heard about. He tells us about the clapometer. <laughs> there was a period which I skipped through, for, you know, during the school the end of the school years and, you know, a year or so after that where we uh, kept trying to get drummers or something, but it would always end up as it was just Paul, John and I. And we went on a lot of con uh, contests and got gigs in various places one night at a time, but we, we had various names. Like well, if we all turned up and had different colored shirts on, then we called ourselves the Rainbows. And we did one talent show thing, which we were called Johnny and the Moondogs, which was really just John standing at the front with no guitar singing, what was that, Buddy Holly tune? Um, Think It Over, with Paul and I just playing guitars at the back doing ba-ba-ba. <laughs> so, and even on that, that was one of those things where everybody went on and at the end of the show you came on one at a time and they decided who won by this machine called a clapometer but by but we had to go leave and get the train back to liverpool before the end so we just went on and then never even went on to see if we got any claps so i don't know we never you know it was really weird we just go places and never hear about it again or just forget about it so we had a lot of names really but Beatles came about, I think the point where Stuart was in the band and we were starting to realize there was a lot of bands, you know, who were quite serious. From that point, we became the Beatles. In this section, George talks about Abbey Road, which was recently celebrated with a 50-year anniversary remix. Something is a song of mine I wrote towards the end of um, that the Beatles album, you know, the White Album. I wrote it as we were still recording that album, but I never finished it off. I could never think of words for it. And um, also because there was a James Taylor song called Something in the Way She Moves, which is the first line of that. And so then I, I thought of trying to change the words, but they were the words that came when I first wrote it. So in the end, I just left it as that and just called it something. something. Actually, I think Joe Cocker's recorded this song oh, yeah. because um, when I wrote it, I imagined somebody like Ray Charles doing it. It's you know that's how I the feel I imagined. But because I'm not Ray Charles, then you know I, I'm sort of much more limited in what I can do. Then it came out like this. It's nice. It's probably the the nicest um, melody tune that I've written. Who'd have thought that something? was written with Ray Charles in mind. That is so interesting because you cannot hear it. 
No, and, and he wasn't in the business really of writing songs for other artists particularly. No, no. That's, so, that's so great. But when you close your eyes and you try to imagine Ray Charles singing it... You can absolutely hear him do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, here is what I think is one of the most delightful and classic Beatles stories. You may have heard this before. It's the story of Here Comes the Sun. Uh, side two, Here Comes the Sun, is the other song that I wrote on the album. On a nice sunny day, this um, early summer, in Eric Clapton's garden, <laughs> because uh, we'd been through really hell with business, and, you know, it's very heavy. And on that day, I just felt as though I was sagging off, like, from school. It was like that. I just didn't come in one day. <laughs> and just the release of being in the sun, and the, it was just really nice day and that I just that song just came it, it's a bit like if I needed someone and you know like that basic sort of the riff going through it is the same as uh, you know all those bells of Rimney sort of bird type thing yeah. well that's how I see it anyway but quite a um, simple tune That's not the only song inspired by those brutally long and contentious business meetings with the Beatles. The line, if we ever get out of here from Band on the Run, <laughs> right. was inspired by George being so fed up during a meeting going, oh, if we ever get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that, yep. having, having met the man. So in this quote, you can hear how George is still kind of sorting out how he feels about Abbey Road. So far, I can't. Maybe it's when I get the album finished and in the sleeve, then I'll get some sort of impression of it. But so far, you know, like with Pepper and even that White album, I got an overall image of my own of the album. Whereas with this one, I'm at a loss. You know, people have said it's, go, it's a bit more like Revolver. Maybe it is, but I, it still feels very abstract to me. I can't, like, see it as a whole. You know, you get an image of an album. Mm. Yeah. It's a bit like it's somebody else, you know. Oh, yeah. It doesn't feel as, as though you it's do. us. Even yeah. though we, you know, we yeah. spend hours doing it, I still don't see it like us. It's more like just somebody else. But it's, I think it's a very good album. I bet that happens all the time. You've recorded the songs, you've labored intensely, and then it's out. And you don't really know what you've done. And you certainly don't realize that you've created one of the best albums of all time that still holds up 51 years later. Incredible. Well, also, there wasn't a lot of lag time from when they finished the recording, and then, boom, the mix was usually done in, yeah. at the most, a couple of weeks, and then it was on the market. Absolutely. So it wasn't like they had some time to kind of contemplate it and get used to it and settle themselves with it. It was just, there you go, on to the next. So in the final section, Tom, Harrison talks about the White Album. And it reminds me that for the fan... You know, the contents of those records are carved in stone, right? I mean, you can't imagine one single thing being slightly different, which is one of the reasons why I think people have had a hard time with some of the remixes, because <laughs> even though the instrumentation wasn't changed, nothing was tuned or anything dramatic yeah. like that, no you know, huge modernizing, sonically, they are a leap forward into the future. Right. And um, some people don't want that. They like things just the way they were. Thank that's, you very much. That's right. But... Aside from the fact that the fans have that hardened attitude towards it, 
the creators are allowed to have regrets. Well, I think in a way it was a mistake doing four sides because um, first of all, it's, it's too big for people to really get into it, for reviewers and also the public. Maybe now people have bought it and if they've really listened to it for years or since it was out, then they you know, they'll have their own favourites and there's a couple of things that we could have done without on the album and uh, maybe if we'd have made it just compact 14 songs, say. Wow, a lot of people feel that way about the White Album. Nevertheless, it is by far the biggest selling Beatles studio album. I didn't know that. The only do you, th- the do you only- wish it was a single album? Yes, I do. I George do. Martin sure did. Yes. <laughs> he made no bones about that. Is that right? Oh, yeah. But, you know, the uh, biggest selling uh, Beatles album that's not a studio album was that album number one. Right. And that came out, I think, in 2000. And that's by far their biggest selling album. Isn't that interesting? See, I, well, I never had that album. But, yeah. um, because it's like, talk about being <laughs> okay, locked in time. Once you know the albums the way they are, in the sequence they are, yeah. they make a certain kind of sense yeah. in time. And the idea of just lifting the bits and bobs and putting them together seems like a very, I don't know, crass idea. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the infamous revolution number nine? Number nine. Revolution number nine was all right, but it wasn't particularly like Beatle. <clears throat> a lot of people put the album down purely because of that track. Yeah, they? but then again, you know, it has uh, good points because Revolution number nine worked very well in the context of all those different songs. I mean, that was the great thing about it, that if people spent enough time listening to it, then there was all different types of music and types of songs. And there was nothing really shocking about it. I don't think there was anything particularly poor about it. But um, it was a bit heavy, you know. I find it heavy to listen to myself. In fact, I don't listen to it myself. I listen to mainly side one, which I like very much with, you know, uh, glass onion and um, warm gum. Interesting that he finds revolution number nine too heavy to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> we all have our own definition of heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, here George talks about the origins of While My Guitar Gently Weeps. I wrote here at my mother's house in the north of England. Oh, yeah. I just had my guitar and uh, I think I, I just opened, uh, that's right, I just wanted to write a song and I do this often actually. If I haven't got particularly an idea for a song then I'm, I believe in a bit like I Ching, you know, where it's everything is at that moment is relative to that situation. So, with, with when my guitar gently weeps, I think was typical of that. I just opened a book that uh, that was around. I just opened it, and the first thing I looked at became the song, and it was something about gently weeps. And then from that, it my the whole thought started going, and I just wrote the song. Then just closed the book again. And I had the idea. Yet another way to write a song. There is no right way, but you have to admit, even the title, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, is brilliant and evocative. Yeah, they they were so tuned in as songwriters. And I could see where he might have picked up things from from John and Paul in that respect, where 
just some random piece of information comes to you, whether it's a poster for a circus or an mm-hmm. overheard conversation or a name you see in a store window. Yes. You know. Absolutely. It becomes a song. Okay, let's keep going with our interview with George Harrison. Here's the story of the legendary guest guitarist. Uh, I think, you know, Eric Clapton playing guitar on that. Right. I think lots of people, some people wrote letters to me saying, you've got a really good blues feel where you play that guitar. <laughs> and uh, uh, we didn't publicize it, but we didn't like keep it a secret. No. Eric's sort of a good friend of mine, and I really dig him as a guitarist and as a guy. Of course, there's a legendary story of George being married to Patty Boyd <laughs> and Eric Clapton being in love with Patty. Layla. <laughs> right. So Eric Clapton ends up marrying Patty, and George attends the wedding, and he calls himself the husband in law. <laughs> <laughs> How modern. Yeah. <laughs> Finally here, something um, which I'd never heard uh, given voice to. This is a fascinating insight into the effect of the death of Brian Epstein on the band. In a way, if Brian, if he hadn't died, I can't imagine where we'd be if he hadn't died because uh, I just, you know, it's impossible to imagine. But because he died, we suddenly had to find out and be responsible for ourselves, which we were anyway. But we, we sort of... The business side of it was abstract then because we always imagined, well, Brian does that and everything's fine, even when it wasn't fine. But with nobody being there, it was directly up to us, you know, to work out what we had to do with ourselves. And uh, so consequently, we came to find out, to our horror, all this past thing that we involved with and contracts and business and oh, tax and you know, all those things. It must have been so weird to exist in the Beatles on a purely artistic level and then you're faced with the hard realities of the business side of things. That must have come as a total shock to them and I'm sure it led to the downfall of the band because now they had to deal with each other on a business level I cannot imagine that ever going well. No, they sure didn't all have the same point of view. Yeah. Hello, Paul. Yes. Great song, Try, Blue Rodeo on Famous Lost Words. Tom, Blue Rodeo are one of a handful of bands that represent the best that Canadian music has to offer, and they are beloved. With that hit single try, the band has never looked back. They've won 12 Junos, sold over 4 million records, been inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, and gotten a star on Canada's Walk of Fame. In this interview, at the time of their ninth album, Palace of Gold, our very own Tom Jokic asks the leaders of the band, Jim Cuddy and Greg Keeler, about inspiration, life on the road. The benefit of mistakes, and right off the top here, longevity. It has been uh, 15 years since I last, since I first spoke to you guys, and 15 years since we first heard from the band. And I see Blue Rodeo as kind of like comfort food, something that you kind of take for granted every once in a while. But then, but then when you have it, you realize this is really good, <laughs> and it's something that uh, that I I think that people. So do what t- level of comfort food would you? <laughs> yeah. What level of comfort yeah, like food? Yeah, we craft dinner? Or oh, no, we... no, no, your spaghetti with my homemade sauce. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's my favorite, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, uh, so how do you explain, how do you explain the longevity of the band? 
I'll start with you. I don't. Jim will start with that one. <laughs> I don't. There's no uh, accounting for people's taste, right? So uh, um, I think that there are a couple of characteristics that that go into some kind of rationale as to why we've, you know, why we've maintained an audience. Um, I guess if you're going to be if you're going to be an audience if you're going to be a band that an audience grows with, you've got to sort of grow up with them too. So first of all, our our music was never particularly lodged in one uh, age category or I mean we weren't ever particularly youthful music we weren't going to remind you of your high school days um, we were always going to be sort of the backdrop to something that you were doing um, we have played everywhere we've gone to places with a lot of consistency because we want to not because it's some gigantic Starbucks marketing plan and also we've put out records with pretty good frequency and tried to make those records different from each other um, so, you know, beyond that, I mean, we came, we came into the recording business in Canada at a time when Canadian music was getting a big push. It was just sort of all the result of all the things they'd done with the, with the CanCon rules, and we were sort of the recipients of that, um, because studios were there, with there were lots of good producers, and, and, uh, there was a lot of energy around us. There was a lot of energy at the, in the Queen Street scene, and there was a lot of people coming down, sort of a no saturation point, you know, people just coming down and having a good time, coming the next night, same thing. So we just came out of a scene that, that propelled us because it had a lot of internal energy. Or a meat and potatoes band, you know? Guy with the guitar sitting down with a couple other guys with guitars, bass and drums, and just people just trying to create something that that moves them you know it is interesting what they say about the opportunity that they had at that time in canadian music to make a mark and how open it was uh, particularly on the queen street uh, music scene in toronto and i love their candor i have to say but that's so canadian isn't it just a, that <laughs> wonderful openness yeah tom here is a rare moment an artist not only lauds a contemporary but gives him specific credit in inspiring a song. Um, Bulletproof is a pretty significant record for you guys because of all the airplane attention it has received. Did you, uh, did you have any idea when you wrote it, when you recorded it, that it was going to turn out the way it has? Well, I played it first time at a little songwriter circle uh, that uh, Jason Collette put together uh, two summers ago. And um, it was the kind of song that got that response, you know, that people noticed like halfway through they sort of put it up i've heard this before <laughs> yeah i said this, yeah that sounds is, like your other songs that i liked no that no that, that actually sounds like a, a ron sexsmith song that i like <laughs> so you were saying greg is referring to i, I don't want to leave any inferences here the song was definitely inspired by a song called foolproof from uh, ron sexsmith's record blue boy and uh you know, I phoned Ron right away. I said, I, I don't know whether I've done a good thing or a bad thing, but I've written a song called Bulletproof, and it was sort of inspired by yours, and you better get your lawyers ready, I think. <laughs> it's a good one, and I don't know what to do. He said, oh, don't worry. I've probably stolen from you or some, some nice thing. And You know, they're not identical songs, but his song was so beautiful that I just, you know, as, I mean, I stopped the record, and then I just got a guitar, and I just started playing. So... I mean, that's the way sometimes you are inspired to write a song is just because you are moved by the beauty of somebody else's piece of work. You know, it ends up being different. But, uh, well, you have to think so, right? So anyway, but yes, I sort of knew that we I had something in my back pocket with that song. And, uh, but, you know, if they come out, they come out. There's not, 
there's not a formula to making them happen like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how you guys feel about having a hit record, but I would think that it's sort of a renewal with the band, if not from within the band, then outside of the band, because it uh, it, it introduces a new uh, audience to the music. Um, and it also gives you guys a little bit more power. It's almost like you have more currency within the record industry when you have when when you know you kind of you revive yourself with a hit like that. It's just easier. It's just easier because there's a because you get there's more attention paid to your concerts and to your this and that. It doesn't make a great record. It's not that that and obviously that's our main focus. Make put out what we think is a great record. But yeah, you know, it's everything goes. You're not knocking on doors; they're open by the time you get there. And uh, and I agree with you. It does give you a currency that you you. Uh, I mean, if we look back on the beginning of our career, I think our career would have been quite different had we not had "Try" as the first song that introduced us to people, because there was something very uh, enticing about being a quirky band with a hit, and uh, so people could like us for the fact that we didn't sound like everything else and yet we were connected to everything else because we had a song on the radio so much so we know what that's like and we know what it's like to not have you know good music surfaces i don't think you know i'm not necessarily looking for hits when i'm out there looking looking for music to listen to but as you say it's nice to have some uh, some currency on you Great song, Bulletproof, and that's the song that kind of relaunched them back into the charts around the time when I was doing this interview with them, and it was such a pleasure talking to them, and it was the second or third time that I talked with them. The first time was right on the on the release of their very first album. So, uh, yeah, it was a real pleasure, and there's more. Well, you know what? I, I, I had to go back and listen to both of those songs, given that setup, and it, it just reminded me of a couple of things. First of all, what a great songwriter Ron Sexsmith is. I mean, that song "Foolproof" that inspired Jim's song. Oh, right. My goodness. Right. Okay. Okay. So let's play. So let's play a little chunk of "Foolproof" by Ron Sexsmith right here. Open up the door, cause I've been fooled before, and now I'm fooled. Very good. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, what inspired Blue Rodeo's Bulletproof. And I, I listened back to that one as well. And it reminded me, more than anything, what a great singer Jim Cuddy is. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just yeah. a gorgeous track. Yeah. Greg Keeler talks about the connection between the records and the live show. You know, I think that we've always been in the same spot. You know, I think that from our first record on it's it's sort of been that way and musical styles have changed around us completely radio has changed around us and lots of other things will change we're just sort of lucky that people like to come to our live show that's been a big part of it right the touring and and also you know you think of a record you know radio or live you know and for one it's just to to help with the live show so people know the songs and they when they come to the show there's they're familiar with the material and the, you know and and this is a good group of songs you know this is a good clubby you know like all of these songs translate well in in a live sort of situation where other records have not translated as well 
Tom, touring is a grueling business no matter what level you're at. It's refreshing to hear Jim and Greg talk about the best aspects of being on the road. Touring is a big part of Blue Rodeo's existence, uh, and I know that constant touring has a high cost to every member of the band because it is so, uh, it's so grueling. What toll does it take on you guys personally and on your families, and how do you manage it? Well, it's not like oil rigging, okay? Let's not, uh, you know, it's not like isolation because the, the, the strange dichotomy is that it's very pleasant. It's a very pleasant world to get yourself in because it's, uh, it's a very focused world. It's very simple. You just and your focus is entirely on the show in the evening. You usually travel at night, so there's that beautiful, timeless quality to going through the through the night and you know usually the Canadian winter <laughs> and uh, traveling to some location. You wake up somewhere. You're either in a hotel or just in the parking lot of an auditorium, or, and then go do the show and that's it. And it's night after night, which is you know which is good because then the show evolves and everybody gets closer and things happen and there's a great uh, musical camaraderie the problem is that the reason it's so good is that this your life is simple because you've left all the other details to either you know whoever is the custodian of your life at home whether it's your family or somebody from you know your life Jim. well so i mean i leave my family for you know a long period of time and that's that is definitely a it's hard on them and it's hard on me. Um, I think the thing we've done now to compensate is spread these times out. We used to do it every year. Um, now we do it every second year. Is your view of touring as poetic as his? Oh, I, I, I love it. Yeah, I love being on the bus. Uh, I like the concentration on the music. I like that the band does get so tight, you know. You just, yeah, you get, you get to a certain level of playing and uh, the collective sort of exceeds its capabilities. Like you sort of know, well, you know, this is, this is about the extent of my musicianship. And then you observe yourself on certain nights playing way beyond your, what you're capable of playing, you know, if I had to sit here and play it right now. And, uh, and so the whole band does that. And so, you know, it's, it's a great yardstick and a great measure of, of you know, what you're doing musically. And that it's so disconnected from what you would call your day-to-day life. That is a great segment, showing the ups and downs mm-hmm. of touring, but it's great to hear them not complain about it and how much they love it and how much Greg loves kind of the, the momentum that you build up as a group getting ready to go on stage. And it's all about the music. I love that. And Jim is so clear-eyed about the fact that it is difficult for the kids, but... You know, at the same time, the guy is an artist and he has to pursue his, you know, his destiny. So yeah. this is, that was a really interesting clip because most people just moan about the road and how awful it is and, you know, yes. the hotels and the backstage and this and that and all the abuse they take. But these guys are going, no, we love playing for people and we love how tight our band gets when we do a bunch of shows. I mean, that's That's great. right. That's why they're still active today. Yeah. We're revisiting Blue Rodeo in a chat that I had with Jim Cuddy and Greg Keeler around the time of the album Palace of Gold. Tom, every act makes mistakes along the way, but what do they learn from those mistakes? If Greg and Jim from 2002 could go back and talk to Greg and Jim from 1987. Oh, man. <laughs> well, I think things have gone like they're, like they're going to go. I don't... <clears throat> maybe it's as... Maybe my mind is just not configured that way, but I think that we've... You know, the things we've experienced that have been bad have been also extremely useful. Um, 
it was very good for us to have a manager that went bankrupt because it taught us all kinds of things about how to look after ourselves. It was very good for us to have American management that, you know, just didn't really do it for us because it taught us how to look after ourselves. And it's been very good all the times we've gone into recording situations that we haven't liked because it taught us what we do like. And that's why we, all the decisions that went into making this place are the result of, to a certain degree, the concrete decisions that we make because of what we want and also because of what we've been through that shows us what to, what to avoid. And, uh, you know, the good thing about our whole career is that we've had a lot of opportunity to go our own way and haven't been pressured into doing doing something else or be, being something that we can't be. What is it about performing? What is it a catharsis? Like you're you're up on stage. I'm just trying to imagine being you guys, being up on stage and you know, converting some people to becoming fans of yours. What is it about it that's really special that keeps you going night after night after night? The buzz. No. Is it the buzz? Is it always the buzz with the audience, or is it the buzz within the band? Or I guess it's probably both. It it's it's yeah, it's all of that. You know, I think that uh, first of all, I think it's it's sort of learning to play for yourselves, to take the music inward personally and inward with the band, um, so that no matter where you play and how many people are there, you're still enjoying making music. And then, as you say, you know, then there's all those people out there in varying degrees of excitement and, uh, and intoxication. And clothing. Yeah, well, thank God. <laughs> That's the fun part. That's why we do it. We do it for the chicks. Okay, there you go. Greg Keeler and Jim Cuddy from Blue Rodeo right here on Famous Lost Words. Tom, great interview. Thanks. So just a little bit more about Blue Rodeo to share with you. Greg Keeler has been suffering some very severe hearing loss over the last few years, which has been a very bad setback for him and his ability to perform live. He's really struggled with that and even dealing with the sounds of everyday life. So that's quite a sad story to someone for whom music has meant so much. We hope Greg is able to overcome those issues and that Blue Rodeo will be able to perform for Canadians for many years to come. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Okay, right now we're going to tell you the story behind three songs. First of all, you know John Sebastian from Love and Spoonful, great singer-songwriter. I loved that band. Yes. Growing up. And when I was a teenager, they were one of my favorite groups. And those songs were just so brilliantly written, and they were so evocative. And it's funny, because at first, you know, they were writing songs like What a Day for a Daydream, mm-hmm. You Didn't Have to Be So Nice, Do You Believe in Magic? And then that gritty Summer in the City in song the city, came out, yeah. which was mind-blowing and how different it was. And it was a great song as well. How about Darling, Be Home Soon? Oh, great song. Love very that good, song. Very good. Yeah. And we've told, I think, a little bit of the story about one of the Canadian in the band, Zal Yanofsky, right. who was a you know, major player in that band. But he got into trouble um, with the cops, uh, with the band, because he named the names of his dealer, okay, got into so much trouble in the hippie community that he left the band, 
came back up to Canada, wow. moved to Kingston, opened a restaurant called Shea Piggy in Kingston, ah, which yes. still exists to this day. That restaurant does, even though Zal has long since passed on. But there's such a history with the Love and Spoonful, with Zal Yanofsky, with the satellite uh, musicians around them, including the Mamas and the Papas. Well, how about right? Creek Alley? The song tells right. the story of all those interrelationships. That's right. Sal and Denny working for a penny, right. couldn't get a fish on the line, right? And for the record, it's pronounced Creaky Alley, according to Denny Ew. Doherty himself. <laughs> now, <laughs> mid-70s, John Sebastian has a hit with Welcome Back. Right. The theme song from the show, Welcome Back, Cotter, starring a brand new unknown actor by the name of John Travolta. Big TV show, very big song, and here's John Sebastian talking about how that song came to be. The point of departure for the story was that it, uh, this young guy who was sort of a class clown in his day becomes a teacher, and his first teaching assignment ends up at his old high school in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Now, although I never went to school at a school quite this tough, uh, I used to get beat up by the kids who went to those schools on my way home from my nice school. And uh, so I had a lot of uh, sort of uh, sympathetic reaction to this little 10-page treatment and uh, wrote the song from that and from what I thought was obviously the point of view of the students, which was, welcome back, ah ha ha. I told the producer before I wrote the song, when he was asking me some questions about what I thought it should be like, I said, you know, I think that it shouldn't be like 99% of television themes, which work fine in the context of the show, but which couldn't get arrested on a top 40 chart. And what I'm going to give you is a number one record that'll also be a television theme. Welcome back by John Sebastian from the 70s on Famous Lost Words. Wasn't that a great story? Mm -hmm. I love that story, and I love him. He's a terrific storyteller. Yeah. I saw him play at a club a few years ago, and he's lost a lot of his vocal range. Oh, I bet. But he has not lost a step when it comes to telling great stories. No, he's great, and he's so likable, isn't he? Mm -hmm. Okay, another song. Dr. Hook's version of Only 16, the Sam Cooke classic, okay? <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is really interesting. So this is Dennis LeCourier of Dr. Hook telling the very funny story of why Dr. Hook decided to cover the old Sam Cooke song, Only 16, in 1975. See, the way we got to doing Only 16, it's a strange little story. When I was about nine or ten or eleven and sam cook used to always be on ed sullivan's show and all different shows singing you send me my mother always used to say do you know that i know him and i used to say come on you know because your mother's always supposed to tell you that she knows people so you like the fact that she's your mother and she said uh, no i really do know him and i said no you don't and one day she took me to an amusement park where he was singing and after his show he was signed about you know a hundred autographs a bunch of crowd of people and my mother took me over in, in, in back of the crowd, and she yelled, hey, Sam. And he looked up and yelled, hey, Ruth. And I yelled, hey, what is this? And fell on the ground, you know, and that stuck in my head ever since. And so when the song came out, just the fact that we recorded it uh, was nice. But then when it became a hit, I mean, my mother bought, I mean, the reason it sold a million is because my mother had that much money. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? That's a great story. His mom says, oh, I know Sam Cooke. 
And Dennis is going, no, you don't, Mom. <laughs> he goes to the concert, and his mom, Ruth, starts yelling, at, Sam, Sam, over here. Sam looks over and goes, Ruth, how's it going? <laughs> That's great. And by the way, Sam Cooke wrote that song about the stepsister of his good friend, Lou Rawls. Okay? Only 16. Okay. Um, speaking of Lou, here's a clip of Lou Rawls talking about his huge hit song, You'll Never Find Another Love Like Mine. Have a listen to this. Well, uh, it was just a song that we felt would be the type of thing that I should, you know, reintroduce myself to the uh, music world with, record-wise, because it was, we felt that it was time for that type of a song to come back because, you know, for a while, the, the uh, ballad love-type song for a while just kind of went out of the window. And so we felt that it was time for something like that to come back. And uh, they had written a song, and I felt that it had all of the ingredients that were needed for it to be accepted by young and old alike. Everybody says that to the old lady or the old, you know, to the, to the woman, she said it to an old man when she gets mad with him. You better be cool. You, you ain't gonna never find another love like I got for you, turkey. You'll never find as long as you live Someone who loves you Tender like I do Oh, great vocal and great story from Lou Rawls about You'll Never Find a Love Like Mine and a couple of other songs, Only 16 by Dr. Hook and Welcome Back by John Sebastian. Some great stories from the archives on Famous Lost Words. Famous Lost Words is a production of iHeartRadio and Orbit Media. Don't forget to get caught up with past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app. And stay in touch with us on Facebook, Famous Lost Words, and on Twitter at Famous Lost Pop.